Welcome to the Rise to the Challenge podcast. Joined today, she's an award-winning author, motivational speaker, and fitness competitor. It's Jules. How are you doing today, Jules? Hey, I'm doing great. How are you? I'm doing so good. We're so excited to have you on the show to talk about your Rise to the Challenge. What we like to do with all of our guests is go right to the beginning. Talk about where you're from and what were you involved in growing up? You know, I was raised in the, the upper Midwest, so Minnesota, Wisconsin area, um, and it was in the 70s. And so at that time, um, things were nowhere near as advanced as it is today. So resources were quite limited. We have just basic blue collar folk. You know, we have a lot of laborers. You know, that was that was my community. And so um, I had I was an only child. And my daddy, I, I adored him. He was my, I would do anything just to be by his side. I, I just thought he was phenomenal. And I think it was vice versa too. Um, and my mom, she, you know, she uh, was a secretary. Um, she, she was always real low key, but she was still a really good mom. And so my father had a small business that was really struggling. And so, and I can only imagine what my mom made for minimum wage in the seventies. I mean, I, I, I can't even fathom, <laughs> was there even a check, you know? Um, <laughs> and so my father, unfortunately had the disease of alcoholism and during the struggles really struggled with his drinking. And uh, one evening he came home in a, in a drunken stupor and I guess he was at his wits end. And so of the options he had, the best choice he felt was to commit a fam family suicide. And I'm grateful to report that there was nobody who died. Thank goodness. But during that time, my mom was, you know, with him in the kitchen. He's writing this letter. I have no idea how she even did that. Um, and what he would do is he would come back to my room and, and say goodnight to me, you know, and say goodbye to me. And, and I'm young, I'm like six, you know, and I'm just thinking my daddy really loves me. And, and so, but what's happening at this time is that my mom has taken the gun off the kitchen counter and throwing it over the porch. So every time he would go back to my room, my mom would take the gun and throw it. And this is the Midwest. I mean, hunting is very prevalent. It's something you mm -hmm. do for the family, you know, in order to even bring in food. You know, and so there was no shortage of, of rifles and, and, and that sort of stuff. And so every time he'd come out, he would just grab another one, grab another one. Like I said, gratefully, that all ended on a better note than it was expected. And so we had the opportunity with when a phone call came in um, that my mom and I ran. And we I did see my father thereafter. I want to say like 20 years, 20 years. And so it was a really, really big change. I, I'm, I'm small. I don't know what we're doing. Why aren't we going home? You know, a lot of these questions. And again, going back to the, the resources my mom had, I have to imagine the reason why she made the choice to get married so quickly was because she could not financially put a roof over our heads or, you know, it, it, so she quickly, like six months after the divorce, quickly remarried, and she married into a, a larger family. So now I'm one of six kids. I'm once an only child, right? I got the world, everybody. I'm just, I'm, I'm center of attention. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm this love daughter. And now I'm lost. I'm lost in the shadows. 
I'm, my mom is now taking on a different role. Of course, she's mothering more children. I don't know who this really like militant, grumpy, mean man is that's now playing the role of my father. Um, and these kids, I mean, it's like these kids, they don't know me. I don't know them. And then the abuse, there's sexual abuse which within this family unit. And it's just, it's throughout, all the way back from the brothers to the uncles to the grandparents. I mean, it's just incestuous all the way down. And so I got caught in the web. And this went on for about three years until we actually left the area and moved to uh, moved to Washington. And so uh, I'm not heard. I'm small. I'm really frail. I'm a small, like super pale, if you can imagine. I'm just, I just don't want to be seen. I don't, I don't want to be in the spotlight because this man is really, really just, he's gross. <laughs> he's just gross. So, you know, fast forward a little bit, we move. We moved to another state. We move out to California. Um, and, and, and at this time, it's like I'm, I'm acquiring all this rage and anger and, and nobody's understanding. Like even when I'd have the meltdown, it was put upon me that you need to really put your emotions in check. Like stop overreacting. All the things that we hear when the people around us are not equipped to deal with this kind of stuff. And it's all a result of my trauma. So here I am, I'm in California. California is very advanced from the Midwest. Yeah. So I am now wearing mini skirts and high heels. And man, I'm, 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 I've arrived, right? Like I, I'm definitely being seen. <laughs> and so what's happening is, is at one point in time, I was able to go to a, a, a camp and it was um, the YMCA camp and it was uh, it was out, like in Santa Cruz, California. And so when I went there, here I'm amongst all these girls my age. You know, we're in the little cabins out in the woods, kind of like, you know, the typical little screenshot you see there. And um, and I'm just completely enmeshed with these amazing people who are listening to me and relating to me. And little did I know that I wasn't supposed to tell everything. And so that came rolling out of my mouth <laughs> about the the abuse I had endured from both my brother, my, uh, my father, and, and, uh, and a cousin at this point. And so, you know, rightfully so, my, the counselor was, uh, she, by authority, she had to tell the authorities, you know, legally she had to report that. And so that's when I was taken out of my home by the authorities. And I actually lived with the counselor, which was wonderful. I mean, she was very accommodating considering um, but what happened is, is she was actually in the middle or ending a divorce. And so she is sowing oats. In other words, what that means, she is partying. There's men, there's liquor, there's cocaine. There's just, there's everything. And I just got enmeshed in that. So the, you know, the coming of the story comes to the surface. My mom takes some action. The divorce is in the process. We all move back to the Midwest because there's family units there and a little bit easier to live than Southern California on a one person income. Mm -hmm. And so, um, so I get back and I'm about, I'm starting ninth grade. Now, if you can imagine here, we have now, we have a girl who has been in California with all of that promiscuous energy and power and misunderstanding of what really life is because this trauma cloud is, all she sees. 
So when I got back, a pivotal point is I was in the counselor's office. Now I'm nine in ninth grade. I'm probably 14 years old. And this counselor, again, very small town. I just have to think the resources were limited. Um, and he had said, you know, Jules, I don't think you're going to be very successful here. And, and I, you do know there's other ways to get your diploma. And I'm not kidding you. That light could not have gotten any greener for me. I hightailed it out of there. He gave me the option to drop out of school. It's exactly what I needed in my eyes. And so that is where my adulthood started under those circumstances. So as you can imagine, there was a lot of, a lot of moving, a lot of shit storms, a lot of upheavals and hitting bottoms. And because the drinking that I was exposed to in the Midwest was a tool I used throughout. Mm-hmm. And so as the anger and the rage continue to rise in me, the alcohol consumption also arrived, it also lifted up as well. And so what it did, it was like this band-aid. It, it would make it all go away. And then better yet, I, I didn't even have to deal with it. And I can become who these people wanted me to be. So here I'm like this masterminding chameleon. So these are the skills I'm developing. This goes on for 19 years, 19 years. One of the fabulous things is at age 35, I have hit my bottom, my third bottom, but the last bottom. And I thank goodness for the, the, I call them gods in skin. Um, There were two angels in the front seat of the car when I mentioned, I just wish I didn't drink so much. Because if you can imagine 19 years, mm-hmm. I'm tired. I'm tired of being tired. I'm tired of starting over. I'm tapped. And so that was my first day in the rooms of recovery. And I was a mess. Just because I got sober did not mean that I, that I was all better. And there was a big, big old bow on the package. And in fact, it was the opposite. Because that Band-Aid had been ripped off. Now I've got no more solution. I have to go through, you know, the 18 to 18 hours or whatnot that were awake, completely in the raw, vulnerable. It was almost like the sun burning type of feeling. And so those first probably three years of recovery was, it was a disaster. I always joked that I was a hot mess. I mean, I would lash out. I was dressing inappropriately. I had an inappropriate mouth but I was healing from the disease of alcoholism. And the people in that room saw me every day. So little things like, Jules, it's really good to see you. <laughs> what? That, this is way too much. What? This is like some kind of coax. It's like, what, you know, this is a fake. And, to, and it was almost like I, I, despite them, you know, I would keep coming back and it's like, I'm going to figure out what this is all about. And, you know, they'd come in and they'd give me this hug and they'd be like, come sit up here with me in the front. Unbelievable sources of love that I could not fathom. But these were the people who held me in that space as we did one 24 hours and the next 24 hours. I mean, everything. My mom died in the first year and a half sobriety. These people held on to me, no matter how wicked I got. 
I'd never been, never had that sort of love before. So I'm 15 years sober. I just celebrated on the 29th of last month. Um, I still get to be a hot mess sometimes. <laughs> but what it means today is that though that loving circle of people, of course, has grown tremendously. And now even outside of the rooms of recovery. But it's I have this ability today to be able to speak that language of the heart. We can talk about weather. We can talk about politics. But you know what? We, we all know exactly what it means when I say despair or isolation or darkness. It doesn't matter what I believe. I know exactly what that feels like. And those are the points that I find when I connect with people that I'm able to, we, we move forward. We move through stuff. You know, and that's a gift I could not, oh my God, I couldn't even make myself move forward, let alone, you know, be of help to anybody else. So um, yeah, it's, uh, it's been a journey thus far. <laughs> and it just feels like I'm starting. I'm, it's like part two of my life. And it's, I, I wouldn't have even known, I wouldn't have even known this sort of serenity or excitement or even existence was even an option. So, yeah, my life has definitely changed. (laughs) Going through the abuse and trauma, was it hard for you to kind of trust people? And when you got to that camp where people were more open, you were with a bunch of kids and a bunch of counselors that really cared about you. It was kind of a way to kind of break down that wall a little bit in that being able to trust and being able to connect with them. You know, I think it was like my first time really being understood by somebody. Right. And I think as that, the child I was, I I was just like elated. Like I didn't even realize what was happening. It was just this exhaling feeling. But speaking of trust, I mean, I'm, my gosh, I have been married to my husband for six years. I still struggle with trust. I still hear my mom in the back of my head saying, plan B, don't trust him. You know, um, it's trust is huge. And I think because it was violated at such a young age, that's why the people that I speak of that that circle is so important because more times than not, when trust is questioned, yep, I'm delusional. There, there's nothing proving that point. There is absolutely nothing that you can pinpoint to have that sort of reaction. You know, that we hear that trauma's in the body families and the muscles. And it is, I've done years of therapy. Uh, You know, I've done a lot of physical, you know, therapies, you know, there's just, there's only so much that I can take out of my brain, right? There's still a lot of like visceral healing that takes place. So it's definitely been a process and, and you're right. That might have been the very start of, you know, that, that onion peeling back just a little bit, but it was an amazing feeling just be heard like that. I think a lot of people when they're younger and they go through something, it kind of sticks with them over time and how we were talking about trust. And then with you and your marriage, how it's still, 
it's a battle, but each step you're getting closer and closer to learning more about being able to, and especially your husband's doing anything he can to help and make you feel safe and calm at the same time. If you, and this is kind of hard because it's what if situations, when you went to and lived with the counselor, if she didn't have that kind of lifestyle, do you think maybe it would be different outcomes possibly? Like maybe you wouldn't maybe go down a certain path. Maybe it could give you some closure, clarity of the past and be able to be a kid, be someone and try to find passions and life stuff. You know, at this stage, when I do look back, and perhaps it's because I've, I've been able to live the full circle, like before recovery, and then now after, yep. I really have, and this is too, when, when people come into your life, you know, and you see their journey, and you see the patterns, and, and but then you see all of a sudden they get sober, and like, it's like, okay, that was part of the process. I'm a firm believer on that. First off, it keeps me out of blaming Mm-hmm. It also puts my faith back where it's supposed to be, right? Like sources got this, you know, and it also takes the judgment out. And those are three things. If I stay there, I am in a really good space. So what I do is I look back, you know, all the past of, of everything that had happened. And I just have to believe that every step of that way was for a reason. Yep. Because everything that I was once shunned, like for instance, you know, you're a dropout you're a slut. You're, you know, I mean, you're, you're a good for nothing. You're a burnout. Okay. Now let's bring this over into today's world. I'm sexually liberated. I I'm very well soft self-taught. I can educate myself. I did go on to college, but that tells me that I have that ability and I'm extremely resilient. So all of the things that people can see as terrible negative, I take I always say it's it, it not it's not good, it's not bad, it just is. Mm-hmm. And when you apply that, this neutrality takes place and it's almost like releasing it. I don't carry it. So that's how I'd have to answer that question is that just happens to be part of my journey. No, yeah, no, I totally understand that because definitely with a rise of the challenge, everyone goes ups and down like a mountain. No one has that straight path, but each time we get get knocked down, we rise like a phoenix back up to yeah. get to somewhere that we want to go. You mentioned earlier that you dropped out of school and it was kind of a way to get on the path with education. And then you just mentioned about college. What were you wanting to pursue in college? What was that goal for you? What was that dream job that you're wanting? You know, people think, oh my God, she got out of high school at that age, man, rock on, party out. It's like, you know, it's like, oh no. My number one thing, I just wanted to get my feet underneath me. Mm-hmm. And I knew if I had, you know, furthered my education, I could get a job and I wouldn't have to be a chameleon for other people. I wouldn't have to abide by others for my survival. I have seven transcripts. <laughs> that tells you every time I relocated, I would land, I'd become who they needed me to be, which is usually very much in a sexual realm. I, you know, they, I would move, I pretty much stay. I wouldn't even move in. I would stay. (laughs) And then I would get into a community college, get into the, you know, and just picking up, picking up, picking up these courses. Cause my game plan was, is like, if I could just do this by myself, 
I wouldn't have to answer to any of these toxic people who have control over me. Mm -hmm. So that's really all that was. That, That was my dream. It wasn't a job at all. I picked the highest paying thing that would that would allow me to to reach that goal. Was there a class that you took that you kind of was like, wow, I really enjoy this? I was really good at science. Okay. You know, when I took the, it's a, an HSED, which is, you know, equivalent to a GED with some extra classes. And so, and, and I tested extremely high in math and science. And I loved biology. I loved it. I used to go to the Goodwill and get the old biology books and donate them. <laughs> I was the one who picked him up, you know, um, along with Deepak Chopra. He has always been a staple on my bookshelf. And, you know, and he is all about, um, you know, the, the uh, I guess, his Western medicine and Eastern medicine mixed. So he kind of gives you a full body, mind-body connection type of experience. But so I then, once I finally got to the university level, I, um, I started pre-med. <laughs> and it, my mom happened to, to uh, my mom had some ups and downs during that time. And I probably had my own ups and downs. And, and ultimately it was, I ended up um, with just finishing with biology. I, I didn't necessarily go on to become a PA or, or whatnot. Um, my mom had died actually at this stage. So, um, but yeah, I had no idea that I was even good at something like that. That was not encouraged growing up. <laughs> I wish I was good at science. Science was like my worst. Like I love the labs, like doing the labs and things like that, being very interactive, but just reading the, the book and stuff. Cause it's kind of like math was my good subject. Cause you got okay. to do the stuff like that. So when you said science, it's like, okay, because usually people, <laughs> they're not out saying science and stuff like that. So yeah. <laughs> Yeah. And I think because it always fascinated me, even when I was growing up. So maybe it was something that started there. But yeah, like math gets so far out there. Like, you know, I can't see it. These are all hypotheticals. You know, it's like, (laughs) at least in biology, I can see the leaf or I can see the organism, you know, big difference. So connecting with science and you are a fitness competitor, did that kind of bring in that back the the science part because you're learning about your body, you're kind of learning about how to stay nutritious, fitness and all that? Not at all. (laughs) (laughs) Not at all. Um, No, after, you know, while I was getting sober, I did, I worked at the hospital, you know, I, I, I was, I was on the floor. Um, What happened was, is at the age of 40, I'm an average 40 year old looking woman. I'm 120 pounds, five, seven status quo. This is really, uh, you know, most people are very happy with this, but I have had this terrible relationship with my thighs. Okay. My mom taught me through my upbringing, this body dysmorphia. And so if you can imagine in Texas heat, I have blue jeans on with spanks underneath. Oh, because I am mortified by the way my thighs move, the cellulite, the texture, the color. I, it was, I just learned this, right? And mine didn't look like what we supposed to look like. And so getting into this fitness aspect was simply me taking this gigantic plunge of going to a bodybuilder uh, gym 
because you look at those girls, they don't have a, sl- they don't have a slither of like yeah. nothing, not a stitch of cellulite on those babies. I'm like, <laughs> I want what she has. <laughs> and so I signed up. I signed up with uh, an IFBB pro and she put me on a meal plan and I didn't get off that meal plan for well over a year. I desperately wanted change. And then of course you start putting that much attention into your body challenging it I mean I started to realize like my my shoulders are changing my arms are changing I was just like oh my gosh and you couldn't get me out of the gym so that is even how that all began I'm sure sources like you know girl you just you know like cats and the little laser (laughs) like girl you just follow the little red dot you just follow the little red dot because everything else around it is just like wow I didn't even see that coming but yes (laughs) it was nothing to do with with my education. (laughs) Going through the fitness program, was it kind of like rewarding that you have control over what your outcome is? You have people that are helping you keep on that path, but you're the sole responsible person to be, this is where I want to get instead of someone telling you or doing Mm. it for you. Yeah, good point. You know, I don't think I had that sort of bandwidth (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> when I went in there, I was, I mean, I'm five years sober. I, I don't think I had that sort of uh, in a force, foresight of, of that. Mine actually is when I would go in there, I would lift and move heavy weights. So for instance, for me to be on a sled and move, you know, hundreds of pounds with my legs releases a lot of trauma. Mm-hmm. It releases a lot of anger rage. I mean, I left there and I don't have anything left in me to fight. So that's really where it started is like, I'm just going to go here and dump this. I've had a bad day at work. I'm going to go to the gym. So that's really what it was. Because even though my body was changing, I had such a delusion of what my body was. I probably didn't even, I didn't see it to the point others may have. I just went in for that good feeling of, I'm just going to dump this shit right here. (laughs) <laughs> so true. I yeah. I definitely can relate to that going to the gym. It's like you kind of just you leave there, you're like, okay, weights <laughs> off my shoulders, just go enjoy, just go be happy for the rest of the day, even if it's just sitting at home because you can't feel your legs at all. <laughs> but it's so worth it. So worth it. Like that angst that it's gone. I have, I'm exhausted. I have nothing. I can't I can't fight if I wanted to. <laughs> if you're If someone listening to this interview that's kind of in your situation and they want to get into the gym, kind of perform at a high level, what would you tell them to get going and get started in that program? You know, I do a lot of my first, my work, I do it inside. So even just writing down, I'm a big journaler. I I love to journal because that's a way of prayer. That's a way of me connecting to this larger source out there. Mm-hmm. My, my little mind sometimes can't wrap my brain around that stuff. So even just writing out um, like what I want, you know, another thing that was very, very um, successful for me was I would see pictures. We're flooded on the internet of beautiful people. Yep. I would take that picture and make it my screensaver on my phone. A constant reminder of, I want something different. I want something different, you know? And then it's amazing because what I found is like when I set my, intention on something maybe it's because my eyes are open maybe I'm more willing I I don't know what it may be but what happens is is I start to see this path line up source brings me the right person 
I'll have that conversation outside of Starbucks with a complete stranger and they'll give me a telephone number. So then if it feels like it resonates, I grab the telephone number. I say, hey, Frank told me I need to contact you. You know, so it's like, that's what it is for me. It's like, I really become mindful of, because I'm putting this out into the world. And I, I'm a firm believer, right? We're, we're energy, we're, we're energetic beings. And so if I'm putting this out into the world, I'm also going to attract this as well. And so a lot of times people get in their own way because of that block. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can't because I got a bad knee. I can't because, because, or yeah, buts. That's what I said, the yeah, buts. <laughs> so really it's an inside job because that's really where the unhappiness starts. But, and, and then too, you know, there's millions of ways to get into the gym. COVID taught us that we can yep. stay fit even outside of the gym. I mean, I wrote a book during COVID. I mean, if, there, <laughs> if anything's possible, you know, we, we know the path. We know it. It's been laid out for us more times than not. Have you been able to participate in any competitions or any fitness comps? Yes. I think it was probably my, uh, about five years into my, yeah, probably 44. I was about four years in. I did my first competition. Oh, I took (laughs) third place. There were only three of us, but damn it. That was my third place medal. (laughs) I was so proud. I mean, this was huge. I hadn't hadn't even worn a bikini, a two-piece bikini in my life. So then to do something to that that level was unbelievable. So then, you know, years gone on, you know, I started, I got another trainer, you know, as life does, life happens. And then I I, I do a show and, and I was like super conditioned, yet I didn't place as well as I thought. And one of the judges contacted my coach and said, there's one show left this year. And I think if we put her in the figure division, she'll do much better. I stayed in that prep mode for 12 more long days. (laughs) (laughs) And I did that show and I knocked it out of the park, a first, a second and a third. And I qualified for nationals. Wow. So I did nationals the following year and I placed in the top three. I took that third place trophy home amongst 15 other women. (laughs) (laughs) So yes, holy crap, right? Again, watch the little red dot, Jules. (laughs) (laughs) You just do the workout. You just do the workout. Trust the process. And so I'm actually home now. I I call it my no-fly zone. I don't travel or anything now because I'm gearing up to, again, go back to that national level show. And I'm, I'm going, you know, I'm going to, I'm aiming for my pro card, you know? So, um, because that first spot, that first place spot is going to be empty. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I'm thinking, Hmm, I have as much as opportunity as anybody else. <laughs> Having those opportunities where you're focused on that next show and you talked about going through sobriety, did it kind of keep you mentally focused on that task where you didn't have to worry about giving up or having those, um, kind of, uh, distractions in your, um, in your minds and things like that. So you didn't fall back and going backwards and say, this is the focus to go forwards. Got it. Great question. You know, what I found is whatever that drive is that you're describing, that drive has been with me all along. That drive was the one that would not let me settle for living in that trailer court with that guy. Mm-hmm. That drive was, would not let me, you know, in that abusive relationship. Whatever that drive was, I was so laser focused because my life depended upon 
And so I think that's why I have that laser focus. And let's face it, you do that at, you know, a few times, it becomes a practice. So then when I get into that grind, as we hear, or that, you know, that just, it's the grind. There's no yeah. other way to say it. You know, it's like, my body's like, this is what we do. And my, my community of people, this is what we do. So it's definitely something that was instilled in me, I believe, many, many years ago. Again, using one of my things from the past to benefit my future. Have you, you and your husband ever gone to the gym together and he's just amazed at your journey and what you're able to accomplish? You know, in the beginning, he said, no, he would never go to the gym with me. (laughs) (laughs) When I met him, he was prepping for an Ironman. So, I mean, this guy's beyond my, oh, beyond my abilities. Like, I'm just (laughs) like, oh my God, you're... I don't know. I can't run like that. No, I I can't swim like that either, (laughs) you know, but so that has actually been a little bit of a learning process too, because, you know, in the masculine, the ego is all about, you know, bigger, better. I'm like this lion and I'm here to protect you. And so to bring that mentality into a, a, you know, into a masculine setting like the gym and it doesn't fit, you know, I take off my sweatshirt and he's just like, you know, the guys are like, holy shit. And you know, <laughs> he's got, he's like, I'm not going to lift with you. I, I'll do the pin, but I'm not going to sit these, you know, these dumbbells down next to you. I've got 35s and you got 65s. I'm not doing it. It's just not. Doing it. But now it's, you know, it's like, all right, baby, we're, we're going to, we're going to find the happy medium. And he actually trains with me and my coach. So it, it, it's, it's that too, another learning curve, right. But to kind of figure out and and now he does things differently. He has different goals than I do, you know, so he eats differently than I do. He, you know, he's not on the crazy meal plan like I am. So yeah, that was another learning curve of the marriage. <laughs> I think you brought up something so interesting where like you talked about how much weight you were lifting to what he was lifting. And I think a lot of people, that's their one struggle that they have is they compare themselves to someone else. Like, oh, they're... I have to go heavier because of that person's going heavier. And I think it's one of those things where people just have to have in their mind is do what you can do because you're kind of grow and eventually get to that point, but you don't want to just go to those heavy weights. And now your arm is in a sling because you injured yourself. It's kind of like you can't compare yourselves to others. And I think social media does a horrible job at that, but they can utilize it as motivation to get to that point. And, you know, I think being competitive is very much a human nature, right? Yeah. We, I think we always size up, always size up. That's, that's part of our survival, right? But I, and I think too, going on this fitness journey, I have learned that I can blow my shoulders out with 10 pound weights. Those oh. bands, you think bands, you think it's just a little rubber band. I mean, I can exhaust myself. Sweat running down my back and it's a piece <laughs> of rubber. <laughs> so I think like once you get into the fitness industry or just in the working out realm, you start to realize that people have different goals. You know, like my husband, he was prepping for an Ironman. He's all about volume. So yeah. he's going to be doing, you know, things that are long sets with lower weights. And, you know, it's like, and mine are high weights and, and lower sets. And so you start to kind of get to see the bigger picture. A lot of people go to the gym for a a sense of recovery, you know, a a hip or a knee or a shoulder. I mean, so I think once I got in there and started to see like, oh, it's really not about the weights. And if you actually, here's a little, little, little secret, see (laughs) that guy lifting all that weight. If if you're really caught, you know, your eyes on it, 
count. Is he pushing that weight three times? Yep. Like, let's really look at the bit. If we're going to go there, we're going to judge it. Like, let's look at the big picture. You know, I move weight. I do sets of 15, three to four sets of 15. You're, yeah, you're pumping out like 200 pounds more than me, but you're moving it four times, four times three, even I'll give you three sets. You know, so it's like, so really, if you go there, like really go in and look around and be like, yeah, no, yeah, <laughs> it's not what we, not what we think when we first glance in there. <laughs> you mentioned during COVID that you were able to write a book. Talk about mm-hmm. be, having that opportunity. And what's the big mission for your book that you want listeners to understand? You know, my, my whole source of recovery has been unlearning and rediscovering who am I? Mm-hmm. What do I want? Right? What is my dogma? We hear or my, my dharma, you know, like, what is my purpose? You know, um, you tell anybody with a story like mine, you tell this to any normal person. And I think the first question, maybe they think, holy shit, she's crazy. Or girl, you need to write a book. <laughs> so that's usually so this is the seed has been planted. It's been planted. And again, it's like, I do the next right thing. I do what's in front of me, what, what resonates with me. And so there was a time where I just could not get enough reading and literature or whatnot on memoirs, other people who've gone through, you know, horrific things. And I'd read and I would just connect with them. And I'd be like, my God, this is, I needed this. And, and so what it was, it was like sources, like, you know, I want you this one and this one and this one. And so what happened is, is then I got to how to write a memoir. Oh. You know, so it's like, then I kind of, you know, switched it over instead of reading one, how would I present one? Mm-hmm. So again, I put this out and put this out in, in my journaling and my meditation. And, you know, then I would talk to this person and say, gosh, you know what? I'm thinking about doing this. Who do you know that I should know? Boom. I'm talking to some dude in Chicago. Never met him. He's wrote, you know, he wrote this book. Boom. Talk about this lady. Eat it down here. So I just followed the dot again. Do you see the theme? <laughs> The red dot theme. Um, <laughs> and so what happened then is Marlena, who helped me write the book, came into my path. We connected amazingly. And so when we put that book together, we did so in a six-month window. Wow. Yes. Because again, that laser focus, that drive, we're on it. Like, let's move through this. Let's make this happen. And so it's exactly what happened. And so my goal, you know, it's funny, you write a book. And your ego steps up in the front and says, oh, my God, we are going to write them. It's going to be a movie. People are going to be calling you. I mean, you're just your ego just blows this sucker so far out of proportion. You can hardly stand it. And so I was like, OK, we got to bring this back down. I'm like way out in Hollywood land. Um, and then I realized the reason I'm writing the book is to connect to the girl in the back of the room. The girl where I have stood more times than not dressed to the nines putting it all together, standing amongst a bunch of people and feeling completely isolated. That my secrets were too terrible to ever, to ever be brought out to the light. I I read in my journal, old journals, like if I could just keep my mouth shut, they would stick around. That's the girl. And now that's the person I'm talking to. Because it's, when I was there, I didn't realize that anybody else was ever there except me, right? It's isolating. It's just me. And so as I spoke earlier about that language of the heart, we talk about things that we know indefinitely 
the feeling of despair, that isolation. Mm -hmm. That is exactly the language we used when we wrote the book. Because everybody's got a story. You can tell me when you fell down on your bike and you were, you know, broke your leg or, but no, I can, okay, I can't relate to that, but I can relate to your pain. Yeah. Right? So that's what I went with. And as we went through the stories, yeah, there's some details here and there, but I'm really focusing on what it felt like, because that's all we have in common. And so that's how the storyline goes all the way through. And, and I've had some amazing feedback by people who could relate to the words I was using. Was this writing the book, the start of wanting to really share your story, share what happened and being able to connect with those individuals on a grander stage where you're doing interviews, like different kind of video podcasts and podcasts and audio ones, things like that. Mm-hmm. You know, in recovery, one of the things they, they teach us is to be able to share your story. I would share it in a small setting amongst, you know, maybe 30 other people. But then we have things called speaker night where you get behind a podium and you tell your story. Um, And that could be to a room full of, I don't even know how many. I mean, there's conventions you can do this at. Um, So I got the practice of being vulnerable because vulnerability is where my healing could take place. So I knew if I could get it out there in that Mm -hmm. room, somebody would get, there would be something that would take place, some healing. And so when it got to this stage, right, um, about putting something out there, my, my biggest concern was the anonymity of the folks who are still in my life today. That was probably the biggest, most challenging thing because I need to protect them yep. because my story is not their story. We just happen to be related in some way. So, so, you know, putting this all together and laying it all out, it bits and pieces of it, maybe not, but the majority of it, I've already shared it amongst people who are safe, who could nod their head as you are now. Like, yep, girl, I know exactly what you're talking about when you were up on that table dancing. Yes, girl. You know, like, so I've already, I already have that practice. And so to write the book, um, there was a time where I thought I would have to write a clean edition. Oh. Because I have parts of my book that not everybody understands. You know, I, I, I have, I'm bisexual, for instance, I, you know, I have a very open uh, lifestyle, you know, things that are still very controversial in some areas. Um, And then I thought to myself, that's the last thing I'm going to do, because if anything needs to come to the light to be healed, it's this sort of dogma. It's this sort of stigmas. So I, I, I think I'm strong enough to be able to be that one to be like, yep, this is what this means. So yeah, I, I think I'm equipped for it. And maybe that too is part of what happened in the first place. You know, that ability to keep pushing through no matter who is trying to pull you down. Maybe that's there. If you had to write that clean version, do you feel it wouldn't be authentic? It wasn't really you writing it because you're having to give another side of, this is not my story, but I have to hide certain things and things like mm. that. That makes me cringe to even hear, but it is right. It's wearing a mask. Yeah. It's wearing the mask. It's appearing. I'm, I'm trying to appear real when it's a total lie. Like omitting truth is just as painful as a blatant lie. And I would not be doing any service to that girl or that person in the back of the room by not sharing that. 
You see? So it's kind of yeah. like, ooh, this one, I got to like stick my nose out. And my neck's out on the line here for somebody I would probably am never going to meet. But yeah, I knew in my heart of hearts that was not the way this was supposed to run. This was not supposed to go that way. So we dropped the idea. I even had a new book cover made. I mean, I was, I was ready. I had already set up with chapters we were going to remove part, you know, and then I was like, this is totally, I'm people pleasing galore. Mm-hmm. And then that just stopped me in my tracks. Just, <laughs> you know, discontinued the contract. I was like, we're keeping it just the way she is. You talked about fitness, writing a book. Is there something special that you're hoping to accomplish in the next few years, personally and professionally? You know, I go where God takes me. You know, think of it as on, I'm on a bicycle and my job is to pedal. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just supposed to, Jules, get your hands off the wheel. <laughs> you know, there's that song, Jesus, take the wheel. No, God's like, don't touch it. <laughs> just pedal, girl. Um, and so I think I'm already doing it. I'm doing it. My whole life has been doing it. Um, of course, I have, I have interests. Um, I think at this point, what's really coming to the surface is what it's like to live authentically today. That would be a very big plunge for me because it is current. I'm not talking about stuff that happened 15 years ago, 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. I'm talking about what happened last night. But I know from my experience in the rooms of recovery, that's the truth. I need to be able to, to speak in order to stay sober. So I have during this, you know, the writing of the book and people reaching out to me, I've had a lot of women, you know, ask questions like, wow, my husband and I have always wanted to try this. What do you think this or that or go to this place? You know, um, what would that be like? Or, you know, or better yet, you know, I'm, I'm 50 years old. <laughs> What's it like to be, you know, can I get into fitness? You know, so it's like, I'm, I, it's, that's the truth I feel needs to be told is, is that part right here. Um, because I do have a very sexually liberated life. I, I'm made to enjoy this body, not be ashamed of it. Um, and another thing that's recently crossed my path is, girl, maybe it's time for you to start the podcast. Yeah. Instead of me trying to, you know, fit into everybody else's, you know, genres, perhaps I need to create my own. I could see you doing one. You just have that energy about you, just even the short time we've talked and known each other, just that energy that is inspiring and it's real. And you have that mission that you want to help and be able to connect with people. And there's probably so much you could do with your own show where you could share your story, but even have guests and where you both have similar stories, but you learn from each other. You help you even help each other or help so many people listening. That's encouraging, especially from your seat. I appreciate that <laughs> feedback. <laughs> and you're right. Cause think about like all the people that cross my path, right? Like I was talking to my friend earlier today. It's like, I, I, I would know to, you know, uh, be able to interview say other competitors, for instance, what's it like to be on off season when you're a little fluffy, you know, like, or what's it to be like a gay, successful man yep. living in Southern, you know, in, in the, in the Bible belt, you know, uh, what's it like to be an only fans girl? What's it like to be a dominatrix? And you know, it's like, I have these sorts of people in my circle. <laughs> these, I've got a, a beautiful colored circle. And these are people whose story also needs to be heard. So 
it's in the making. <laughs> it's in the making. It's uh, it's it's no longer just a thought. It's like, hmm, pen to paper. What would this look like? So thank you <laughs> for your positive feedback. I always say everyone has a story. Some people like to share it. Some people like to keep it private. But there's always an outlet where when they're ready to share it, they're able to. And I think yeah. a lot of shows and I... I love having guests from different backgrounds because our worlds are completely different, but there's ways that we can connect and kind of have similar things, even though our worlds are in two different spots completely. So mm-hmm. I, that's why I love yes. the power of these shows is yes. being able to connect all over the world with great individuals. Because we hear we're all one, right? We've heard this like forever. We're all yep. one. Yet it, on the outside, we all look different or there's something different about it. And I think that, you know, in the rooms of recovery, that's all we do is we talk about this. We, we, we focus on the similarities, right? That's how we heal. That's how we get sober. Why would that not work out in the other worlds, right? So, uh, yeah, I'm spot on. And like, yeah, like, let's just break the stigma. How about just even if you have to be anonymous, even if you don't even want to show your face, I'll call you Bob. Just tell me your story, share your story. So somebody else can nod their head and say, shit, I'm not the only one. Yeah. The the final question I'll ask you for someone that's listening to this interview based on your journey and experience, what tips or advice would you give them to overcome obstacles, accomplish their goals and rise to the challenge? Mm, Two things come to mind. What you are feeling inside is called intuition. Follow that. It's going to get messy because the people around you will not know what the heck to do with it. But (laughs) that, that is truth. That's your intuition. And the other thing, it was actually said to me at one point in my journey, and it just, it was a showstopper. She said to me, Jules, you're exactly where you're supposed to be doing exactly what you're doing. Thank God. Am I really, I supposed to be a mess right now? I supposed to be losing my job right now? I suppose, yes. Yeah, pretty powerful. Well, Jules, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show and talking about your fabulous. rise to the challenge. <laughs> You're inspiring so many people and we're excited to see what the future looks like for you. Yes, thank you. I'm glad we were able to do this. Tune in next time to hear my next guest talk about their rise to the challenge. Remember to follow, subscribe, and all major audio platforms. And make sure you subscribe to our YouTube channel to the episode in video format. What path do you take to accomplish your goals? You. Bye.